Section 16 of The Crimson Circle by Edgar Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Chapter 38. The Arrest of Thalia. It was the seventh day following the meeting of the cabinet, and, so far from agreeing with the terms of the Crimson Circle, the government had made it known, in the most unmistakable terms, that it refused to deal with the Circle or its emissaries. That afternoon, Mr. Raphael Willings prepared for a visitor. His house in Onslow Gardens was one of the show-places of the country. His collection of antique armour and swords, his priceless intaglios and his rare prints were without equal in the world. But he had no thought of his visitor's antiquarian interests when he made his preparations, and he was less deterred than stimulated by a confidential document which had come to him, intimating in plain language the character which Thalia Drummond bore. Thief she might be. Well, she could take any sword in the armory, any print on the wall, the rarest intaglio among his showcases, so long as she was pleasant and complacent. When Thalia came, she was admitted by a foreign-looking footman, and remembered that Raphael Willings had only Italian servants in the house. Warily, she surveyed the room into which she was ushered. There were open windows at each end, which surprised her. She had expected to find a little tete-a-tete tea-table. That was missing. And yet, in this room was the cream of his collection, as she could see at a glance. Willings came in a few seconds later and greeted her warmly. "'Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Perhaps today.' he said melodramatically. "'Have you heard the news?' She shook her head. "'I am the newest victim of the Crimson Circle,' he said, gaily enough. "'You probably read the newspapers and know all about that famous company. Yes,' he went on with a laugh, "'of all my colleagues I have the honour to be the first chosen for sacrifice, pour encourager les autres.' She could not help wondering how, in these circumstances, Ralph Willings could preserve so unruffled a mien. "'As the tragedy is due to occur in this house some time this afternoon,' he was continuing, "'I must ask you to extend your kindness.' There was a tap at the door, and a servant came in to say something in Italian, which the girl did not understand. Raphael nodded. "'My car is at the door.' If you would honour me, we will have tea at my little place in the country. We shall be there in half an hour. This was a development she had not looked for. Where is your little place in the country? she asked. It was, he explained, between Barnet and Hatfield, and expatiated on the loveliness of Hertfordshire. I prefer to have tea here, she said, but he shook his head. Believe me, my dear young lady, he said earnestly. The threat of the Crimson Circle distresses me not at all. Onslow Gardens is paradise enough with so delightful a guest. But the police have been to see me this afternoon and have changed all my plans. I told them that I had a friend coming to tea, and they suggested a more public rendezvous. The police, however, quite approve of my alternative scheme. Now, Miss Drummond, you are not going to spoil a very happy afternoon— I owe you a thousand apologies, but I shall be very disappointed if you refuse. 
I have sent two of my servants down to have everything in readiness, and I hope to be able to show you one of the loveliest little houses within a hundred miles of London. She nodded. Very well, she said, and when he had gone, she strolled through the room, examining its fascinated contents with every appearance of interest. He came back wearing his greatcoat, and found her looking at a section of the wall which was covered with beautiful examples of the eastern swordmaker's art. "'They're lovely, aren't they? I'm so sorry I can't explain the history of them,' he said, and then, in a changed tone, "'Who has taken the Assyrian dagger?' There was undoubtedly a blank space in the wall where a weapon had hung, and a little label beneath the empty space was sufficient to call attention to its absence. "'I was wondering the same thing,' said the girl. Mr. Willings frowned. "'Perhaps one of the servants have taken it down,' he suggested. "'Though I have given them strict instructions that they are not to be cleaned except under my personal directions.' He hesitated, and then, "'I'll see about that when I come back,' he said, and he ushered her out of the room into the waiting limousine. She could see that the loss of his precious trophy had disturbed him, for some of his animation had departed. "'I can't understand it,' he said, as they were passing through Barnet. "'I know the dagger was there yesterday, because I was showing it to Sir Thomas Summers. He's keenly interested in eastern steelwork. None of the servants would dare touch the swords.' "'Perhaps you've had strangers in the room.' He shook his head. "'Only the gentleman from police headquarters,' he said. "'And I'm quite sure he wouldn't have taken it. "'No, it's a little mystery which we can put on one side at the moment.' For the rest of the journey he was attentive, polite, and mildly amusing. Not once did he give the slightest hint that he entertained any other emotion towards her than that of a well-bred man for a respected guest. He had not exaggerated the charms of his little place on the Hatfield Road. In truth, it lay nearly three miles from the main road, and was delightfully situated in the midst of rolling and wooded country. "'Here we are,' he said, as he led her through a panelled hall into an exquisitely decorated little drawing-room. Tea was laid, but there was no servant in sight. "'And now, my dear,' said Willings, "'we are alone, thank heaven.' His tone, his very manner had changed, and the girl knew that the critical moment was at hand. Yet her hand did not tremble as she filled the teapot from the steaming kettle, seemingly oblivious to all that he was saying. She had poured out the tea and was setting his cup in its place when, without preliminary, he stooped over her and kissed her. Another second and she was in his arms. She did not struggle, but her grave eyes were fixed steadfastly on his, and she said quietly, "'I have something I'd like to say to you.' "'Well, you can say anything you wish, my dear,' said the amorous Willings, holding her tightly and looking into her unflinching eyes. Before she could speak again, his mouth was against hers. She tried to get her arm between them and to exercise the jiu-jitsu trick she had learned at school, but he knew something of that science. She had seen on entering the room that at one end was a curtained recess, and toward this he was half lifting, half carrying her. She did not scream. Indeed, to Raphael, she seemed more yielding than he had dared to hope. Twice she tried to speak, and twice he stopped her. 
she struggled nearer and nearer to the curtain brocade. The two Italian servants were in the kitchen, which was somewhat removed from the room, but they heard the scream and looked at one another, and then, with one accord, they flew into the hall. The door of the drawing-room was unlocked. They flung it open. Near by the curtain, Raphael Willings lay on his face, three inches of Assyrian dagger in his shoulder, and standing by him, staring down at him, was a white-faced girl. One of the men jerked the dagger from his master's back and lifted him groaning to a sofa, whilst the other rushed to the telephone. In his agitation, the Italian, who was endeavouring to staunch the flow of blood from the wound, jabbered unintelligibly at the girl, but she did not hear him, and would not have understood him if she had. Like one in a dream, she walked slowly from the room, through the hall, and into the open. Raphael Willings's car was drawn up some distance from the front of the house, and the chauffeur had left it unattended. She looked round. There was nobody in sight. Then all her energies awakened, and she sprang into the driver's seat and pressed the plug of the starter. With a whine and a splutter, the engine started up, and she sent the car flying down the drive. But here was an obstacle. The iron gates at the end were closed, and she remembered that the chauffeur had had to get down to unlock them. There was no time to be lost. She backed the car, then sent it full speed at the gates. There was a smashing of glass, a crash as the gates broke and she was in the road with a damaged radiator, lamps twisted beyond recognition, and a mudguard that hung in shreds. But the car was moving, and she set it spinning in the direction of London. The whole porter of the flats in which she lived did not recognize her. She looked so wild and changed. "'Aren't you well, miss?' he asked, as he took her up in the lift. She shook her head. Once behind the door of her flat, she went straight to the telephone and gave a number, and to the man who answered, she poured forth such a wild, incoherent story, a story so punctuated by sobs, that he found it difficult to discover exactly what had happened. "'I'm through! I'm through!' she gasped. "'I can do no more. I will not do more. It was horrible! Horrible!' She hung up the receiver and staggered to her room, feeling that she was going to faint unless she took tight hold of herself. Hours passed before she was normal, and it was in that condition that Mr. Derrick Yale found her when he called that evening, her old, calm, insolent self. "'This is an unexpected honour, she said coolly. "'And who is your friend?' She looked at the man who was standing behind Yale. "'Thalia Drummond,' said Yale sternly. "'I have a warrant for your arrest.' "'Again?' She raised her eyebrows. "'I seem always to be in the hands of the police. What is the charge?' "'Attempted murder,' said Yale. "'The attempted murder of Mr. Raphael Willings. I caution you that what you now say may be taken down and used in evidence against you.' The second man stepped forward and took her arm. Thalia Drummond spent that night in the cells of Marlebone Police Station. Chapter 39 "'As to what happened, I have yet to learn,' said Derrick Yale, to a silent but attentive Inspector Parr. "'I arrived at Onslow Gardens just after Willings had taken the girl away. The servants at the house were rather reluctant about giving me information, but I soon discovered that she had been taken to Willings's house in the country. 
whether she enticed him or he lured her is a matter for discovery probably he is under the impression that she went against her will all along i have suspected thalia drummond as being something more than a servant of the crimson circle naturally i was a little alarmed and flew off to thatfield arriving at the house just after she had left she escaped in willings's car smashing the lodge gates en route by the way that girl has got nerve how is willings he will recover the wound is superficial but what is significant is the proof that the crime was premeditated willings only missed the dagger with which he was stabbed this afternoon after he had left the girl alone in his armory whilst he put on his overcoat he thinks she must have carried it in her muff and that of course is very likely he gives me no very clear account of what were the events which immediately preceded the stabbing hmm said inspector parr what sort of a room was it i mean the room where this nearly occurred a pretty little drawing-room communicating with what willings calls his turkish room it is a marvellous replica of an eastern interior and i should imagine the scene of more or less disreputable happenings willings hasn't the best of reputations it is only separated from the drawing-room by a curtain and it was near the curtain that he was found mr parr was so absorbed in his meditation that his companion thought he had gone to sleep but the inspector was not asleep he was very wide awake he was conscious of the appalling fact that once more whatever kudos attached to the latest of the crimson circle's outrages went to his companion and yet he did not grudge him the honour without warning he delivered himself of a sentiment which seemed to have no bearing whatever upon the matter they were discussing all great criminals come to grief through trifling errors of judgment he said oracularly yale smiled the error of judgment in this case i presume being that they didn't kill our friend willings he's not a nice man and i should imagine of all the members of the cabinet he could best be spared but i for one am very grateful that these devils did not get him i am not referring to mr willings said inspector parr rising slowly i am referring to a stupid little lie told me by a man who really should have known better and with this cryptic utterance mr parr went off to break the news to jack beardmore it was typical of him that jack was the first person who came to his mind when he learned of thalia drummond's arrest he was fond of the boy fonder than jack could guess and he knew even better than yale how heavily the weight of thalia drummond's guilt would lie upon the man who loved her jack had already received his shock the news of the girl's arrest had been published in the stop press columns of the late editions and when parr arrived he was the picture of desolation she must have the best lawyers procurable he said quietly i don't know that i ought to take you into my confidence mr parr because you naturally will be on the other side naturally said the inspector but i've got a sneaking regard for the leah drummond too you said jack in astonishment why i thought i'm human said the inspector a criminal to me 
is just a criminal. I have no personal grudge against the men I have arrested. Truland, the poisoner whom I sent to the gallows, was one of the nicest fellows I have ever met, and I got quite fond of him after a bit. Jack shuddered. Don't talk of poisoners and Thalia Drummond in the same breath, he said testily. Do you honestly believe she is the leading spirit of the Crimson Circle? Mr. Parr pursed his thick lips. If somebody came to me and told me the Archbishop was the leading light, I shouldn't be surprised, Mr. Beardmore, he said. By the time this Crimson Circle business is settled, we are all going to have shocks. I started my investigations, prepared to believe that anybody might be the Crimson Circle. You, or Marl, the Commissioner, or Derek Yale, Thalia Drummond. Almost anybody. And you still hold that opinion? asked Jack, with an attempt at a smile. For the matter of that, Mr. Parr, you yourself might be the villain of the piece. Mr. Parr did not deny the possibility. Mother thinks, he began, and this time Jack did actually laugh. Your grandmother must be a remarkable personality. Has she views on the Crimson Circle? The inspector nodded vigorously. She always has had, since the first murder. She put her finger down on the very spot, Mr. Beardmore, but Mother always could do that sort of thing. I've had my best inspirations from her. In fact, all the... He stopped himself. Jack was amused, but he was pitying, too. This man, so ill-equipped by nature for his work, had probably won himself a high place in the police service by dogged, unimaginative persistence. In every service, men had reached near to the top with no other merit than their seniority. It was just a little fantastic at this moment when the keenest brains were exercised to lay this bizarre association by the heels to hear this stout man talking solemnly of the advice he had received from his grandmother. "'I must come along and renew my acquaintance with your aunt,' said Jack. "'She has gone into the country,' was the reply, "'and I am all alone. A woman comes in every morning to clean the place, but there's nobody there evenings. It doesn't seem like home to me now.' It was a relief to Jack to get on to the subject of Mr. Parr's domestic affairs. Their very unimportance was a sedative to his wrecked mind. He felt that an evening spent with the inspector's knowledgeable grandparent might even restore him to something like normality. Parr himself led the conversation back to more serious channels. "'Drummond will be brought up tomorrow and remanded,' he said. "'Is there any hope of getting bail for her?' Parr shook his head. No, she'll have to go to Holloway, but that won't do her much harm, he said, heartlessly, as Jack thought. It's one of the best prisons in the country, and maybe she'll be glad of the rest. How came Yale to arrest her? I should have thought that was your job. I instructed him, said Parr. He has now the status of a regular police officer, and as he'd been in the case earlier in the day, I thought I would let him continue it to the end. Just as the inspector had foreshadowed, the police court proceedings of the next day were confined only to evidence of arrest, and Thalia Drummond was remanded in custody. 
the courthouse was packed and a big crowd attracted by the sensational character of the charge filled all the roads approaching the court mr willings was not well enough to attend but well enough to send his resignation to the cabinet in response to the prime minister's suggestion contained in a letter couched in such unpleasant terms and the acidulated vocabulary of the prime minister was notorious that even he the thick-skinned willings was pained whatever happened he was everlastingly disgraced even the thick and thin supporters of his policy would be revolted by the evidence he must give he had taken the girl a comparative stranger to his country house made violent love to her and had been stabbed there could be no romantic version of that unpleasant story and he heartily cursed himself for his stupidity parr made one call upon the girl whilst she was in prison she refused to see him in her cell and insisted upon the interview taking place in the presence of a wardress she explained her attitude when they sat together in the big gaunt waiting-room of the jail he at one end of the table and she at the other you must excuse my not seeing you in my apartment mr parr she said but so many promising young emissaries of the crimson circle have met with an untimely end through interviewing policemen in their cells the only one i can recall said parr stolidly is sibley who was a shining example of indiscretion she showed her even white teeth in a smile now what do you want of me i want you to tell me what happened when you called at onslow gardens she gave him a faithful and a detailed account of that afternoon visit when did you discover the dagger was gone when i was looking round the room whilst willings was putting on his coat how is lothario he's all right said parr i'm afraid he will recover i mean he added hastily i'm glad to say he'll get better was that the first time willings noticed the absence of the dagger she nodded did you carry a muff yes she said is that the place where the deadly weapon was supposed to be concealed did you have your muff in your hand when you went into his house at hatfield she thought a moment yes she nodded inspector parr rose you are getting all the food you require yes from prison she said emphatically prison food will suit me very well thank you and i do not want anybody out of mistaken kindness to send in luscious dishes from outside as i understand prisoners on remand are allowed he scratched his chin i think you're wise he said end of section sixteen